when Shmuel began teaching Megillus Esther, he would begin with the following Pasuk from Parshas Bechokosai, the Pasuk taken from the Tochacha. In the end of the Tochacha, after the horrors of Galus, the horrors of Jewish suffering are delineated, HaKadosh Baruch Hu promises us, V'af gamzos, this is in Perak Chavav of Ayikra, even though all these horrors and all these nightmarish scenes have befallen you, and even though you are situated in the land of your enemies, you have been exiled from the land of Israel, you're embedded, you're anchored to some foreign land, I will not despise you, I will not contempt you, to destroy you or to annihilate you, or to violate or rescind my covenant, I'm your God. Shmuel employed this Pasuk as a preamble to his teaching of Megillah's Esther. And he interpreted the Pasuk as follows, because the Pasuk has several layers of several redundancies. Lo me'astim bebavel, I didn't despise you, I didn't neglect you when you were in Bavel. Lo gialtim, you weren't repulsive to me when you were in Madai. Lechalosam, I didn't destroy you, biyavan, when you went to Greece or when you were subjugated by the Greek culture. And then rescind the covenant, the Malchus Harisha, when you were subservient to Edom, to the Roman Empire, to Western civilization. And then the Pasuk concludes, I will be your God, or I am your God, even in the Messianic era, in apocalyptic times. So Shmuel was able to see in all these five phrases of the Pasuk references to different stages of Jewish history, different stages of HaKadosh Baruch Hu maintaining his Brits with Am Yisrael. And for Shmuel, the correlation, the correspondence between Megillah Esther, between the events in Shushan, and the description of Parshas Bichokosai and the Tohacha was a crucial context within which to understand the miracle of Purim, the challenge of Purim. It wasn't just a, a genocidal threat lodged at Am Yisrael in a historical vacuum. What was Haman's, uh, what was Haman's Havamina? What was Haman's, uh, assumption? He, he was a wise student of, of history, of the rise and fall of various empires. He obviously was, was quite savvy politically. He obviously thought long and hard about this genocidal process. It wasn't something taken on a whim. So in part, Haman is, is part of historical legacy of Esav, and Esav is still battling Yaakov for the Bukhara, and at every point that Yaakov attempts to, assert his historical mandate. Esau's grandchildren try to block or obstruct that advance. So when the Jewish people leave Mitzrayim and they're forged as a nation and they're about to accept the Torah in between Kriyas Yamsov and Kabbalah Satara and the end of Parshas Bishalach, Amalek, the grandson of Esau, tries to stem their advance and to defeat and to recover the chosen status which Yaakov had secured or had taken from Esau. And then say for Shmuel, when Am Yisrael achieves monarchy, and with monarchy comes empire and sovereignty. Agag and Amalek lead a war against Shaul, attempting, again, to, to deter Am Yisrael's march, to deter Yaakov's ascending to sovereignty, which would be the actualization of, of, his, of his replacing Esau, and Parshas told us. And Haman is part of this historical lineage. But Haman lodges a challenge which his predecessors, Esau and Amalek and Agag, couldn't and in no way concede because Haman agreed that indeed the Jewish people 
were chosen, and it was obvious to the student of history, to the reader, even the cursory reader of Tanakh, that this was a supernatural nation who had been privileged to so many miracles during the first base on Mikdash, uh, entering Eretz Yisrael, defeating the savage, uh, barbaric kingdoms. So it was clear to, to him and to any student of history that this was a unique nation. But his challenge, Haman's challenge ultimately was that they were chosen, but that they compromised that selection and that they betrayed their God and that they forfeited their Mikdash and that they surrendered the chosen supernatural status. And now... Now they could be defeated. This is effectively Haman's claim to Achashverosh, or at least, if not to Achashverosh, who seems to be a fool, at least to himself, while he discusses with Achashverosh, Yeshna am echad mefuzar emefarad bein ha'amim. They have now joined the League of Nations. They're no longer chosen. They're no longer mamlechas konim. They're gaikadosh. They were, but they no longer are, because they've been expelled from Israel. They've been deported from Mikdash. And now they're just a regular nation who are victimized by the circumstances and whims of historical cycle, and they can be defeated, and they can be overcome, and they can be annihilated. This was Haman's great gambit. Haman agreed. Haman effectively concedes Yaakov's victory over Asaph, but now that the, the terms of that victory have been compromised, and the the license of Yaakov's Bechara has expired, and now he steps in when Amishol is in Gullus, living through the dark nightmares of the Tochacha described in Parshas Bichlokosai, because the first Tochacha in Parshas Bichlokosai corresponds to the first Gullus in Bavel, just like the second Tochacha in Parshas Kisavo corresponds to the second Gullus, the long night of Gullus. Haman steps in and assumes that he can defeat the Jewish people. And the miracle of Purim, effectively, according to Shmuel, the miracle of Purim was not just a salvation, was not just a recovery, was not just HaKadosh Baruch Hu averting disaster, but it was asserting that as, as mutinous as the Jewish people are, as disobedient, as frustrating, and as obstinate, the Afgamzos, even though all this will befall you, and I will be betrayed by you, and you will be situated, be Eretz Oivehem, Lo me'astim, I will not despise you. Lo ye'altim, I will not contempt you. And most importantly, I will not destroy you, and I will not violate or revoke the bris. So Shmuel citing this pasuk and associating each phrase with a different stage of Galus, Bavel, Madai, Yavan, Malchus Harashah, Liasid Lavo, was Shmuel's way of demonstrating one of the sub-dramas of Megillus Esther. That Megillus Esther, effectively, Haman was the first Christian. Not theologically, he was a paganist, he was Zerastruan, but he was the first person to lodge the claim that we were God's unchosen people. We had been chosen, but we had been, um, we, we had been deselected de- because of our mutinous, rebellious ways. And this was the great, great moment of Purim, the great Kabbalah Satara, once again to show that the bris was still intact. So this is a very subtle message of Purim, and it's Shmuel's way of telling us that I will not despise you. Interestingly enough, that same Medrash, which quotes Shmuel, quotes Rabbi Chia, who said something similar. He also unfolded the various layers of this Pasuk, Lo me'astim, I won't despise you, Lo ge'altim. But unlike Shmuel, for whom each of these layers represented a different empire, Yavan, Madai, Bavel, for Rabbi Chia they represented people. Lo me'astim, this is Rabbi Chia's language, bimei aspasyanos, I will not allow aspasyanos to conquer you. 
Logeltin be made, Trachvinus, different, uh, presumably, uh, Roman or, or Babylonian, it's hard to know, uh, maybe who Trachvinus was, Lechalosam be made Haman, Lechafabrisi tam be made Romim, Kenyashem Lokehem be made Gogu Magog. Namely, Rabbi Chia senses that the covenant HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the bris that Rabbi Mishalom is reinforcing, is not just a bris which will outlast the the cycles of different empires, Madai and Yavan and Bavel, but the bris is strong enough to outlast the machinations and the conspiracies of people. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu submits Am Yisrael to the struggle of history, and that submitting of Am Yisrael demands that they travel through Gullus, Assuming they're not able to maintain the high standards expected of them at Harsinai, and that they must bear this walk through Galos and bear the message of Torah, it's not just enduring the the passing of history, the the evolution of history, the various historical empires which which dominate our world, and by dominating our world, always tussle with the Jewish experience because our message is, is a is a is a prominent one, is a historical one, and and when we lock horns with history, we lock horns with the empires which dictate history. It's not just about the empires that we struggle with or against, but it's about people, and those people aren't necessarily the kings, and sometimes they specifically aren't kings, and sometimes those people wage war on the Jews, and in many cases they employ the military might, the political influence of various empires in very dastardly and demonic fashion. They're not necessarily representative of the overall empires. Hitler wasn't representative of Western civilization. It wasn't an attack of Western civilization against the Jews. He was merely exploiting and, 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 and employing um, German culture, German technology, German know-how, German military might, German psychology, to launch, launch an all-out assault on the Jewish people. The Crusaders weren't Western civilization in, in, in total. It was just a, it was a part of Western civilization, a part of the church that launched an attack upon the Islamic occupation of Yushalayim, and in their path, they eliminated all the infidels. Um, King Ferdinand's uh, uh, Inquisition, well, there may have been the Spanish Empire, but it certainly wasn't overall Western civilization at that point. And Haman very much is part of this tradition. The, 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 the political infrastructure of Paris and Mandai isn't aligned at its heart against the Jewish people. And you see this in, in the quick turnaround, the quick reversal, where the entire apparatus becomes at once a foe of the Jewish people and then secondarily... Uh, an assistant, an aid to the Jewish people. It's Haman that's manipulating the system, that's exploiting the system, that's paying for his genocide, that's paying off Achashverosh to, gen- to, to murder the Jewish people. And Haman is is adopting the system. Hillel, uh, excuse me, Hitler adopts the system. The Crusades employ, manipulate the system, and that's what Rebchia was more intrigued by. Not that a Kodesh Baruch Hu's bris will outlast the. The, um, the struggle of undergoing the historical process as different empires visit the earth and challenge the Jewish message and challenge Jewish prominence by their rise, by the Yaakov Esav myth. Now, when I say myth, I don't mean something which doesn't occur, but the Yaakov Esav legend. Rabbi Chia was more attracted to the personalities 
And those personalities aren't always, those personalities aren't always representative of the broader malchus, but they certainly employ the tools and resources of that broader malchus. There's a fascinating introduction which Rabbi Yitzchak used to employ, which is very much in sync with Rabbi Chia. So this year we've discussed Shmuel's introduction, Shmuel's preamble, Rabbi Chia's preamble, which was structurally similar to Shmuel's, but with a subtle difference. And when Rabbi Yitzchak would introduce teaching the Megillah, he would cite a pasuk in Tehillim, Kuf Chavdalad, and this would be his drasha. Shir HaMa'alos, Lulei Hashem, Shehayalanu, Bekumalenu Adam. If it weren't for Hashem who stood by us and defended us when a man rose up, up, upon us or against us. And Rabbi Yitzchak's drasha, as a intro or a preamble to the Megillah was, Adam Vilomelech, Bekumalenu Adam, when a man ascended or a man rose against us, it was a man, not a king. The Maharal speaks about this drasha in his Arachadash, in his uh, parish on the Megillah. Rabbi Yitzchak was also highlighting what Rabbi Chia was subtly differentiating from Shmuel's drasha, that this was not a melach leading an empire, this was not an all-out assault of the Parasel Madai culture against the Jewish people, it was Haman manipulating. And this leads to a whole new model of anti-Semitism. That's what makes Purim so modular and so emblematic and such an important template for the Jews to look back upon and remember as they themselves. It, it's important to stress that Purim was not just an event and it's difference from other miracles and other salvations and the reason that we celebrate it for eternity and it outlasts all the other miracles which we celebrate in the second day Samikdash whose celebrations have expired or passed. But the miracle of Purim, La Yasef Mitoch Zaram, will never, will never expire. And according to the Chazal, even in the days of Mashiach, we'll, we'll celebrate Purim at some level. It's because it was a template. Because it taught the Jews a lesson about the, the rest of Jewish history. And it was really the first anti-Semitic moment of an individual. You don't get the sense that Nebuchadnezzar had a unique detesting of the Jewish people, unique contempt for the Jewish people. This was just a political jargonaut, and it just trampled everything in its path. And certainly if you read the events leading up to the Chorimei Samikdash and all the political changes and transformations in the area and the emerging rivalries between Mitzrayim and between Ashur and then the rise of Bavel and Am Yisrael's fateful and, and, and wrong decision to side with Mitzrayim, those who read the end of Malachim, the Jewish people suffer not primarily because they are earmarked and targeted as Jews or as a unique religion or as the Amashem. They just are on the wrong side of the political ledger. They just choose the wrong horse. And the same with Sancheirev and all of a sudden Haman, and to a degree, really re reinstates and reconstitutes Amalek. Amalek had no political reason for attacking the Jewish people, unlike Sichon Melech Amari, unlike Og Melech Abashan, unlike Balak and Bilam. They had no security issue. They had, this is just a sense of the unique role of the Jewish people and an attempt to dislodge them from their role, to disprove their selection and to debunk their identity as the Avanifchak. And for Rabbi Chia and for Rabbi Yitzchak, the sense that this was not a melech. This was not Yavan, quote-unquote, Madai, quote-unquote, Paras, quote-unquote. This was Haman. This was an Adam. 
It's a very, very important lesson for the Jewish people that sometimes they would just simply endure history. Sometimes they would have to endure the demons of history, the devils of history, not the the flow of history, but the individuals who manipulate history, who exploit history, and and launch their attacks against the Jewish people. So this is the first part of the series of Chazal's preambles to the Megillah. And we describe Shmuel's preamble and what that Pasuk invokes, and Rabbi Yitzchak's and Rabbi Chia's, and all of them saw this in historical terms. Rabbi Hanina Barada began his teaching of Megillah Sester by quoting a section in Kohelas. Section in Kohelas describes, in Parakyud, describes wise men speaking and fools speaking. So, for example, in Pasuk Yud Beis, Divrei Pi Chacham Chein, the words of the Chacham are, are full of charm and wisdom. The Sifsos Ksil Tavalenu, but yet the lips of the foolish person will absorb, will swallow, will overcome. That even though the wise person attempts to speak wisdom, the, f- the foolish one will defeat all of his best intentions. And Pasuk Gimel continues, presumably to describe the um, the regression of the speech of the foolish person. When the foolish person begins to speak, it's silly. And the end of his speech is not just silly, but is evil, is um, is uh, is menacing. So these two psukim in Kohelas, Perak, you are taken together. On the one hand, describes the contrast between the speech of a wise person and the speech of a fool, but also demonstrates the progression of speech. The first part of Pasuk Yud Aleph, or excuse me, Pasuk Yud Beis, talks about wise speech, and then there is a disintegration from wise to foolish and from foolish to negative and, and um, hostile. So when Rev Ada began to teach Megillah Sester, excuse me, Rev Chanina Bar Ada, he began by quoting these Psukim in Kohelas. And who was he referring to? He was referring to Persian kings, the kings who reigned in Parasumadai. Not specifically Achashverosh, though perhaps Achashverosh as well. It's not clear what role the Achashverosh of Megillah Esther plays in the dynasties of Parasumadai as described in Sefer Ezra. But one thing is clear. That Koresh, the second Persian king, at least this is the lineage that Rashi provides in the beginning of Sefer Ezra, the first Persian king was Darius I, the second Persian king was Koresh. In the first year of his reign, he authorized the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. Seventy years had passed from the first exit from Israel, Jews actually returned to Eretz Yisrael, and Koresh authorizes, as is described in the beginning of Sefer Ezra, Perak Aleph, he authorizes the initial stages of building the foundations of the Mikdash. You can't imagine, you can't imagine the enthusiasm, the excitement, the sense of redemption, which permeated throughout the Jewish people. But soon thereafter, the locals, those non-Jews who had been settled in Israel by Sancher of hundreds of years earlier in his massive 
ethnic cleansing and re-landscaping of the Mediterranean Crescent. He moved peoples around. So Sancheref had settled many non-Jews, many different people in Israel. They were angered by Jewish colonization. And at first they wanted to join, and when they were barred by Zubavel, the Jewish mayor, um, they started to write um, letters of propaganda back to Koresh in Persia, in Paras, in Madai, claiming that the Jews were fortifying their land and building a mikdash, and they would stop paying taxes, and they would ruin um, Koresh's kingdom and empire. And they were actually successful in blocking and deterring the building of the Mishkan, of the, excuse me, of the Mikdash, and it was delayed 18 years until Daryavash, the son of Achashverosh and Esther, presumably, at least the way Rashi describes it, there's a lot of confusion about the exact lineage and which kings in Sefer Ezra correspond to the Achashverosh of Megillus Esther, Sefer, excuse me, Ezra. But there's an 18 year period that expires or lapses between when the Beis HaMikdash has begun and when it's ultimately completed. And during those 18 years, the, the, the rulings of these kings of Koresh and his successors, which had shown such promise in authorizing and allowing the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash, these rulings, which had possessed so much wisdom and so much potential, now regressed, now disintegrated into initially lukewarm support and then ultimately opposition and prohibition against building the Beis HaMikdash. So, so these Sukkim and Kohelis, which talk about an initial speech of a wise person disintegrating into the foolish speech and ultimately the evil speech, is a perfect gloss to describe the hopes which these decrees had initially evoked and the dashing of those hopes when the building of the Beis HaMikdash was halted. But why is this little synopsis or snapshot of Sefer Ezra, why was it quoted, why was it cited by Rabbi Hanina Baranda when he began to teach Megillah Esther? What does this little story have to do with Megillah Esther? Well, the truth is, it has a lot to do with Megillah Esther. It has a lot to do with the Persian Empire and its role in Megillah Esther, and it's impossible to read the story of Purim, without seeing it in a broader political context, it wasn't so important not just to see the nace of Purim as some miracle avoiding genocide in some vacuum of time, but this entire drama was unfolding as the Beis HaMikdash is lying partially built. There's a ban on continuing its construction. Jews are, by and large, living in Israel. Unclear how many of them were living there, although ultimately only about 42,000 Return to Eretz Yisrael, it's unclear how many of the 42,000 who ultimately returned were already stationed there during the nace of Purim proper. And it casts a, a negative light, a negative flavor upon Achashverosh as part of this Persian dynasty that had initially authorized the building of the Mikdash, but later rescinded that authorization. So, in this respect, it casts Achashverosh as one of the villains rather than either a neutral figure or perhaps even a heroic figure. But more than describing and defining the role of the Persian kings of the Koreshes and the Achashverosh's, it assigns a certain identity to the sons of Haman, and it puts their activities into an important light. If you take a look in Ezra, 
in Perak Dalid, where the locals who are living in Israel first become uh, jaded or or they become disappointed in the Jewish efforts. So there are two people who are leading the charge. Interestingly enough, there are a lot of people signed on the letter, strange people whose names we don't really hear about too often, a person named Bishlon, Mitradas, Tavel, and many other of the local leaders put their names down, but there are two people who really take the lead. One is named Rechum Baal Te'em. He was, I guess you could call him the director, the chairman of this meeting, of this protest. His name is Rechum, ironically, Rachamim, but he wasn't showing any mercy to the Jewish people. And then his ally was someone named Shimshi Safra. Shimshai, who was a sofer, he was the secretary. He actually took notes and wrote letters. So these were the two people leading the protests against the Jewish people. These were the two opponents of building the Beis Hamikdash. We don't really know too much about Rechem, who was the, I guess, the coordinator of the meetings, but we do know about Shimshai Safra. According to Chazal, and Rashi quotes this in Ezra, Perak Dalet Pasekhes, Shimshai Safra also happened to be the son of Haman, one of Haman's ten sons. And before the miracle of Purim, he's living in Israel, he's opposing Jewish settlement on purely political grounds, this is not, so to speak, anti-Semitic, he doesn't hate Jews, his claims, or so he suggests, his claims to Koresh are purely Purely political. If the Jews fortify their base Hamikdash, they won't pay taxes. They'll rebel. They've always found themselves or held themselves as beyond the law. His claim to Achashverosh, or at least in the beginning of Ezra, to courage is to hold Jewish construction to purely political, not religious or racist reasons. But what makes this association so important is that the same children of Haman, or the same child of Haman, who is arguing against Jewish expansion in Sefer Ezra on purely geopolitical grounds, ultimately is planning and conspiring to murder the Jews a few years later in Shushan for purely racist, anti-Semitic, hate, genocidal intents. And it discloses that the original letters in Ezra, written by Shimshai Safra, the son of Haman, weren't really geopolitical. It was just a mask to mask virulent anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism really is a virus. It can't exist without feeding off of some identity, some idea. Sometimes anti-Semitism presents itself as theological. The Jews kill Jesus, or so they suggest. Sometimes it's racist, as Hitler suggested. The Jews are a sub-race. In today's world, in which racism and the discussion of different races is very unpopular, it isn't PC, so anti-Semitism has to present itself as geopolitical. We don't dislike Jews, we just dislike Israel, imperialism, settlers, it's all the same hatred for Jews, and it just presents itself different, it masks itself differently. And, and keep in mind there was the son of Haman, in Ezra, who writes political letters against Jewish construction and Jewish uh, settlers, and then a few years later, he writes these same letters 
That's why the letters are so important. In Megillus Esther, the letters were written, and the Achashtranim carried the letters, and they carry them to all the corners of the kingdom, because in part, the letters of Achashverosh call into focus the letters of Shimshai Safra in Ezra Perak Dalet. It's, it's a linguistic or textual device to connect the two storylines. A madman in modern-day Paras, modern-day Persia, Iran, speaks of himself as the opponent of the Jewish state. He doesn't dislike Jews. He doesn't hate Jews. He just, in fact, he hosts Jews and Ahmadinejad hosts Jews in his land, hosts them with, with graciousness and hospitality, but we have to be able to see anti-Semitism for what it is, not to get caught up in whatever guise or front or mask it presents or conceals itself in. And that's part of the reason that the ten sons of Haman were hung high to display that these were haters of, of, of Jews. They weren't just writers of letters of a political agenda. So that's why, in part, Rebbe Hanina Barada began the description of Megillus Esther not by telling us how much money was paid or what was eaten at the meal of Achashverosh, but there's a larger saga there's a larger narrative which Megillus Esther is part of, and that's the narrative of the Jewish struggle towards the latter part of their first Gaulus to return to Israel and the opponents whom they met and they squared off with. And the same villains of Megillus Esther were the villains a few years earlier in Ezra Perak Dalet. But the truth is, invoking this broader narrative by quoting this Pasuk, of Yitzchak Barava quoting the Chanina Barava, excuse me, quoting the Pasuk in Kohelas about, as he saw it, a gloss, a description of Persian kings who had held out so much potential but ultimately withdrew that authorization. His second purpose. The Gemara Megillah says, why were the Jews punished and threatened with extinction? What was so great about their sin? A very famous question. And the Gemara's answer is because they partook of the Suda of Achashveros. And there's certainly, certainly enough about that meal to, uh, deter a Jewish, a, Jew, a Jewish person, a, a sincerely religious person from attendance. It was an orgy, it was opulent, it, it was... Uh, we'll talk about this in Mitzvah Shem in subsequent Shirem. And that Gemara certainly doesn't need further explanation. But part of the Gemara's intention is not just that they partook of a Suda whose moral values were questionable, but the Beis HaMikdash was being built in Israel and had started to be built... At some point, it's unclear where within the 18 years between the initial building and the ultimate completion during that 18-year lapse when authorization was rescinded, when did the miracle of Purim really occur? But it occurred sometime within that 18-year pocket. And it's impossible to imagine that Jews are building the base Hamikdash in Israel, sacrificing themselves for the future of their people, facing terror and aggression as the Sukkim and Ezra describe and certainly political hostility and opposition. And there there may be Jews who remain behind in Shushan, and there may be reasons for them to remain behind, either, uh, either reasons they're allowed to choose or just practicalities of life and barriers that bar them from, from ascending and joining their brothers. But how dare they? How dare you? How dare you not live your life normally because you have to, but how dare you luxuriate 
in a 180-day party in Achashverosh's courtyard while Jews are building history. And that's the claim of Chazal. It's not just that the food, food definitely was, was kosher, was appropriate. As the Gemara says, the wine was kosher and the food was kosher. So there's no halachic violation. There clearly was a moral, a moral, uh, 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 crime. Enjoying a meal that was just so uh, voyeuristic and so exhibitionist. But beyond the moral crime, there's a historical crime that the Jewish people are sacrificing their very lives in Eretz Yisrael and you're partying for 180 days. And when Rabbi Ada, Rabbi Hanina Bar Ada, cited this Pasuk in Kohelas about wise, wise speakers and foolish speakers, and so these Pesukim in Kohelas Parakyut as allusions, as veiled references to courage authorizing and then rescinding, he wasn't merely impugning and uh, prosecuting the sons of Haman for their role in Ezra. There are true intentions in Ezra, the true anti-Semitism in Ezra, only disclosed by their genocidal letters in Megillus Esther, but he was also indicting the Jewish people for their laziness, not in remaining behind in Shushan, that could be tolerated, but indulging and immersing themselves in the meal while the Jews are struggling to build the Beis HaMikdash in Yerushalayim. So there's an indictment of the children of Haman, just as there is a prosecution for participating in a meal while history awaits them.